Well, good morning. That music is just, it's hard to be sad during that music. It's just kind of peppy. You know, today we're starting a new sermon series entitled Finding Joy. And I, I say this because over and over they do studies and they, they come across again and again that we are trending negative in America today. And we kind of, we tend to focus on things, not just in our political world, but at work we tend to trend negative. With our family we tend to trend negative. When we think about the future we tend to trend negative over and over you hear study after study just saying we just start tending to look at the glass as half empty more and more as a culture, as a society. And so I think this idea of finding joy is a big deal. If joy is a choice, but, but finding it, learning how to live in it despite, in spite of everything going on, I, I think it's a big deal. We all want it, but sometimes it's elusive and sometimes it's hard to try to figure out how exactly to, to, to kind of live our lives in that way. So today we're going to start this new series, and the way we're going to do that is we're going to use the book of Philippians. Philippians, in every way, is the book of joy, and so if you love taking notes in your Bible, I encourage you to bring your Bibles over the next 11 weeks, that's right, 11 weeks as we do this, and write in the margins. I give you permission to write in the margins, it's okay. It's, uh, next time you go through that book, you, bring, you look through those notes on the side, and it makes that book come alive again, and I want you to have some parts of Scripture that are just very meaningful to you, so I encourage you to do that. Now you may ask, why Philippians, of all the books that we could do, and I think it's because its theme, this finding joy theme, is really relevant to our lives. Not just because we trend negative, but just because it's something that we yearn for as we walk through life. For the book of Philippians, in summary, is a book that helps us deal with so many of the problems that we deal on an everyday basis. It has common problems, normal problems, struggles that we have all the time, and it gives us answers. And Paul, all the way through this book, gives us kind of the same answer, and you'll kind of pick it up as we go through the series. But essentially it's this, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And if you think about that, that is somewhat revelatory in many ways because we live our lives really focused on us, sometimes even focused on our belly button and we run into people and there's conflict that happens as a result. But he says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. In other words, remember that heaven is our goal. Remember that we have a Savior that loves you and wants to help. Remember that he's there. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. For this is the thing that he says will give you ultimate joy as you walk through life. So I'm calling this series Finding Joy because it's a book, it's a series that deals with the importance of keeping your focus on Jesus. It's a book, it's a series that helps you be joyful and find joy as you walk through life. It's a book that helps us keep perspective no matter what it is that's going on in our life. And so to do that, we're going to start in chapter 1. That's where we're starting today because Paul starts right off giving us words of wisdom Words from God that help us be more joyful. And the way he starts that is by talking about the people in our life. And he's saying, why in the world would he start by talking about the people in our life? Well, think about it. If you're Paul and you want to start a book and you're writing to the people of Philippi and you want them to get their eyes on Jesus and you want them to experience more joy in your life, what better way than to start talking about some of the relational dynamics that are going on in our lives? And I say that because, again, if our relationships are bad, the general consensus is, is that life is hard. It's no good. Think about it. If your marriage is bad, are you happier or sadder? Are you more frustrated or less frustrated? If your kids, if you're struggling with your kids, if you're agonizing over decisions they're making, if you have a strained relationship, does that make you happy or sad? How about at work if you have dynamics that aren't right? If there's people at work that you just have a hard time loving or that make your job more difficult. When our relationships are bad, everything seems to be affected by it. Like the old saying, when mama ain't happy, what? It going? Nobody's happy, right? So you understand that. Okay, 
So this morning, I want us to take a look at the question, what kind of friend are you? And the way I want to start this is going to be a little interactive in this part, but I want you to turn to your neighbor and ask that question, what kind of friend are you? And I want you to respond with 10 words or less because I only want this to take about 15 seconds, okay? So turn to your friend or to the person next to you, what kind of friend are you? And do that now. Go do that this time. Okay, that was about 15, 20 seconds in there, okay. So you learned some things about the person sitting next to you, some of them encouraging, some of them just disturbing, but either way, we learned something, and that's fantastic. What kind of friend are you? I ask that that you ask that question because I came across this the other day. Peter Drucker, the father of American management, once said this, that the number one characteristic of a CEO or of a leader is that they enjoy other people. Now, if that's true in the business world, then it's doubly true, triply true, immensely true of the people in our families, in our personal lives, in our homes. And the answer, that, or the, the question, does this matter, is absolutely. It's a huge deal. And so I want you to, I want to kind of do a follow-up question, and it's just this. How are you doing with that? Or maybe another way to ask the question is this. Do you actually enjoy the people around you? I don't mean right this second, because of course you'd say yes, but do you actually enjoy the people around you, the people that you work with, the people that you're married to, the people that are in your family? I think that's a convicting question for a lot of people. I think we struggle as we go through life. We do trend negative. We, we kind of pick faults. We, we notice the things that people do that annoy us, especially on the freeways. I think it's a, it's a convicting question, okay? In politics today, it's a convicting question, for sure. But do you actually enjoy the people around you? In Ecclesiastes 9.9, it's talking to the men here, but it says, Husbands, enjoy life with your wife whom you love. But the problem that I find over and over in counseling is that in way too many marriages, it's more a matter of endurance than it is enjoyment. And that's not a good thing. It's not a divorceable thing, but it's not a good thing. It's not the way God intended it to be. He wanted you both to bring joy to each other, to help each other, to be helpmeets toward one another. And the reality, I think, for far too many of us is that we, we really don't enjoy the people in our lives. We tolerate them. We, we put up with them. We maybe even endure them. And again, if that's true with marriages, how much more true is that of all the other areas in our lives, all the other relationships that we have? And that's what I want to take a look at this morning, to the answer to this question. What does it take to truly learn to enjoy the people in our lives? I think it's a, it's a big question, and I think the reality is in our culture, because we trend negative, our hearts are growing cold toward people. You see this on the freeways, I think, when they cease to be people, but just cars, right? Uh, you see this in the news or on politics or, or even sometimes in the workforce. Sometimes you even see it in the family where people stop being humans, but we start treating them as less than. And I think if we're honest, we do enjoy being around certain people, but they comprised of such a small number of people that we find ourselves continually laboring with our relationships in our life. And so God has some amazing words. Paul has some amazing words for us in Philippians and how we learn, can learn to kind of reverse that trend and really begin to enjoy people. And he begins again in verse 3, but he, this is the first point that Paul shares. He says, we got to learn to be grateful for the good in people. Because there is good in in almost everybody. In verse 3, he says this. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. How many people can you say that of? 
even your spouses, even your kids. I thank God every time I remember you. Paul said, you know, I like to remember the good things about people, focus on the good times that we have, remember the positive experiences that we've had together. But again, I'll ask you, how about you? What is it that you remember most about people? Do you remember the good experiences or the bad experiences? And I ask that because when Paul shared these words, he wrote them in the midst of the reality that he had not had a good time in Philippi. It was a very brutal time. Imagine the worst vacation you have ever had. Okay, put that in your mind. Worst vacation you've ever had, and then add to it a little bit. And then in Acts 16, it tells us the background to Paul's journey to Philippi. It tells us that when Paul went to Philippi, he was arrested illegally, whipped, humiliated, then thrown in prison. And then while he was in prison, there was an earthquake. And then on top of all that, the leaders in the town asked him to leave the town and never, ever come back. It was a bad vacation. It was a bad work trip. It was bad in every way. In short, Paul did not have a good time in Philippi. He had a bad time. And yet it says here, when I think of you, I remember the good things. He says, I thank God every time I remember you. Now, Paul, if anybody, could have dwelled on the negative here. He could have remembered all the painful memories, all the people that just kind of shirked back into the sidelines when things started going wrong. But he chose instead to focus on the things he could be grateful for. But again, I'll ask you, how about you? I ask that because just in life we have experiences, positive and negative. And maybe in your past you have been hurt by a parent or a partner, right? And you're still holding on to that hurt. And as a result, you can't seem to get to a place where you can actually enjoy being around them anymore. It just seems like you just can't get in a positive mood when they're there. It's just you can't think positive thoughts. You're still focusing on the bad and on the negative. Paul says if you want to move on with the rest of your life, then you have to learn to be grateful for the good in people. Which is just leads us to the, this lesson number one, which is this. Remember the best and forget the rest. See, pleasant memories are a choice. I, I can choose what I remember about the past. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you have to deny the hurts that have been kind of brought to you, that you've experienced in life. And I'm not saying that you excuse the weaknesses in other people. You address them. You, you understand them. But what I am saying is this. You need to focus on the good in people and to emphasize their strengths. I hear wives all the time saying stuff like this. He's a good man, but... And every time you hear the but, you know something negative is coming. Is that fair? He's a good man, but... And so Paul says, be grateful for what you got. And here's a newsflash. There is no Mr. Perfect right, or there is no Mr. Perfect, okay? There just isn't. I, I don't care what Hollywood tends to project out there. There is no Mr. Perfect out there. And so be grateful for the good in other people. I'm grateful every day that my wife said yes. Does that make sense? Because I clearly do not deserve her, so I'm very grateful. But, but, the, but the reality is we look for the good in other people. If we just do this one thing, it would, it would change so many things. I, let me give you an example. I, I was talking to a guy one time, and his daughter went through a divorce, and it was just brutal. And, and he just struggled with his feelings toward this kid and, and struggled with his anger and, and just couldn't... Couldn't get to a good place. Well, over the years, the kids grew up and, and just different things, and the kids were in sports, and, and he went to the, the games, and then he started noticing that the dad did too. And he thought to himself, he's still investing in his kids, even though I don't respect him at all and I don't like anything that he's done. He's still investing in the kids. And then he'd watch 
this father interact with the kids and he'd see some good things that the dad was doing, the care, the support, the different kinds of things. And it started to change his opinion and it moved his resentment into pity and then from pity to a mild appreciation, right? Doesn't take away anything the guy did, doesn't make anything that he did right, but it got rid of the hatred in his heart because he began to appreciate, to see something that was good in this young man instead of just the evil that he kept rehearsing day after day after day. If we do this one thing, it would expand the number of people we can love and it would help us deal differently with people. It would give us hope where we are hopeless. It would change resentment into pity. It would do all sorts of things that could help us care for others. But then God and Paul, they wanted to add to this because this first part's hard. And so he says, look, you got to do the second part to get there. And that's it. you got to practice positive praying. In verse 4, it says this, In all my prayers for all of you, I, will, I always pray with joy. I'd like the Apostle Paul to be praying for you. I think that would be awesome. It'd be pretty encouraging to me. It seems like they were pretty tight, right, God and him, and he answered a lot of Paul's prayers. I think that would be incredibly encouraging. And to be fair, I think a lot of us would. I hear it all the time, and how much people appreciate knowing that the church is praying for them when they're going through difficult times. Sometimes people even say, I got like five churches praying for me, and I'm, I know God's there, and it's just an encouragement that it's not just them going through the struggle, through the situation, but there's, there's other people ushering their very struggle up to God, and it gives them courage. The reality is it just kind of points us to the second lesson, which is this, that the quickest way to change a relationship from bad to good is to start thanking God in prayer for people. And the amazing thing about doing this particular thing is that it does two things automatically in your life. Number one, it starts to change your attitude toward them. I was at a, a conference one time with pastors, and we were talking about resentment and how do you get past resentment, and a bunch of pastors talking in a circle. And the district president was sitting at our table, and his daughter had been raped by an individual. And again, same thing, he struggled forgiving this kid. And he said, the only way I could get past that and turn that resentment into pity is to start praying for this young man. And not that God would come and zap him. I, he goes, I think those are my initial prayers. But, but he said, uh, I started praying for blessing for this kid. That somehow God would see him and turn his life around and make him different and get him to a better place and somehow become real in his life. And he said it was a process, and it took months, maybe even a year, he said, but I kept praying, and, and it turned my heart, again, from resentment to really pitying where this young man was, and then to hope that maybe he would change. It, nothing changes your attitude like praying for somebody, and if you're really struggling with resentment, this is where you start. But there's a second thing that does this, this causes as well, and it's actually that it changes them. Because okay, positive praying is much more powerful than positive thinking. They may resist your advice. They may spurn your appeals. They may reject your suggestions. They may not listen to our help. But they are powerless against your prayers. I was just talking to a guy before first service, and he was saying, you know what, I was, I was hopeless about this situation. I started praying. God answered. And I'm seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, and now I'm seeing some amazing thing happen that I never thought could happen, and, and God is just good. They are powerless against your prayers. And so when you say to somebody, I'll pray for you, what do you pray for? I ask that because I think in this crisis moments, I think we're pretty good at praying. We pray specifically, we're praying on top of it, we want to see whatever the struggle is taken away or made better or whatever, and we're praying for people that we care for. But when things are just on a normal kind of situation basis, what are you praying for? 
if you even remember them, you'd probably say something like this, God bless their lives, which is good, but it's pretty general. And what Paul seems to indicate all the way through all his letters are simply this, that when you pray, the more and more specific you are for your prayer, the more and more specific the answers are to your prayer. He says this in verses 9 through 11, he says this, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, it's pretty wordy, but essentially what Paul is saying here is there's four things that I'm praying for these people over and over. And what's cool about these prayers is that they're the same prayers that we can pray for people in our life. And here's the even cooler part. We can know that they'll work because they're God's will. They're, they're right here in Scripture. And essentially, I'll just review them again. One of the first things that Paul prays for is he prays that they will grow in love. Do you have people in your life that are just hard to love? Anybody have one of those in their life? It's hard to appreciate, hard to care for. You're all wise and not raising your hand. It's probably me. Anyway, think about praying, praying that they would grow in love, that their edges would get softer, that they'd change, that they'd be more compassionate, more sympathetic. Paul words it this way, abound in love, which means they overflow, their love overflows like a tidal wave. He goes on and says, pray that they make wise choices. Think of your, your kids or your spouses or the people that are close to you. Don't you want them to make wise choices in life? Paul says, discern what is best. He also says, pray that they do the right thing. Again, think of those same people, that they would be pure and blameless, Paul says, and have a clear conscience. Life is so much easier when you have a clear conscience, when, when you're not always trying to overcome the consequences to your sin. And finally, he says, pray that they will live for God's glory, fruit of righteousness. Paul says that you will enjoy people more in your life if first you learn to be grateful for their good in their, in their lives. But secondly, if you learn to practice positive praying. And then he goes on with perhaps the hardest one, and it's this. He says and encourages us and then commands us to be patient in the progress. I think that's hard for us. Paul looked at people's, he did a remarkable thing. He looked at their future and not just their past. I think we inordinately judge people based on their past. We don't give them a break. If they've hurt us once, if they lied to us once, it's done, and we move on way too often. But he was able to look at their future, not just their past. He was able to see their potential and was patient in their progress. Thank your kids. So often we do that with them. In verse 6, it says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this verse, and one of the reasons I love this verse is because it's kind of wrapped into one of the absolutions that we do as the church. An absolution is where God says, I forgive you, right? We put it on the end of the confession piece often, and it's wrapped into one of those. And what it says is simply this, what God starts, he finishes. I love that. You know, I've said this over and over, but you can know you're the elect. God's chosen today. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you love him, you can know that you're the elect. You're his chosen today. If you die today, you know you're going to heaven. But this verse gives us courage for tomorrow because it says that what he started, he finishes. What God starts in your life at salvation, he will bring it eventually to completion, he says. And while there are many people in this life that are not great finishers at times, the Bible says that Jesus Christ starts working in your life and he will always complete what he starts. 
And so in spite of my hang-ups and my faults and my bad decisions and my sins, in spite of all the circumstances that I face in this life, God is going to finish what he started in my life and in your life too. That you're going to make it. And the only way you can blow that is if you purposely decide to walk away from Jesus. If you say, I don't want any part of you. Otherwise, you can know that he'll keep working on you and in you until you're with him in heaven. And that gives us encouragement. And that gives us courage to keep on fighting. And it gives us hope. That's a big deal. So when you get to heaven one day, you're going to become like Jesus because you'll see him as he is, and that's the goal. And so here's the lesson number three. God is not finished with people. And so we need to be patient with people's progress because it doesn't always happen overnight. To enjoy people, we must allow for their growth and for their development. Paul could say, absolutely, I, I'm not the man I used to be, thank God, right? Because he used to kill Christians and all those things. But he says, thank God I'm also not the man I'm going to be. I'm growing and I'm changing. In your marriage, if you want to enjoy your marriage, you've got to learn to enjoy your husband or your wife right now while allowing for growth and development. Otherwise, every t- if you have to have all your conditions always met, they'll never meet them because just about the time they meet the conditions that you have, you'll set new conditions for them to meet and they'll just never get there. Parents, if you're going to learn to enjoy your kids, you've got to learn to enjoy them in the process as they're growing, as they're making mistakes because there's no such thing as a perfect kid and, and there's no such thing as a perfect adult. And if you have to demand perfection in all the people in your life to enjoy them, and you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life, I promise. Because there are no perfect people. And so if you want something to change your attitude so that you can learn to be more patient in the in-between, start praying for the person that irritates you at work, that person in your home, child or mate, and see what happens in your life. Then be patient with their progress because life is a matter of growth. In John 1.12 it says this, To them he gave the power to become the sons of God. In other words, the Christian life is a process. But there's power in God to make these changes that we're talking about. We're all growing. So to enjoy people, we've got to enjoy them in the process, not only when they've arrived. And then Paul and God, they give us this one last thing at the end of this, this chapter, or this, this part of the first chapter. And it's this, love people from the heart. I've discovered an amazing thing over the years, and that's that if people are not on my heart, then they are on my nerves. Anybody share that? Right? If your kids are not on your heart, they will get on your nerves. If your husband is not on your heart, he will get on your nerves. True story. My wife told me. Um, the reason so many marriages are crumbling today, I believe, is that mates are reacting to each other with their mind instead of their hearts. But love always begins with understanding and getting how somebody works. You ever wonder why you're more patient with your kids most of the time than somebody else is? Because you get all the experiences that led up to this point. You get the way their minds work. You, you understand the way they process things. And it gives you a, a vehicle to look at their behavior, to look at what they're doing, and have some understanding in the midst of the process. But that's true with other people, too. You start asking, why does that guy at work act like such a jerk? And maybe you just don't know the background he grew up in. Maybe he's way better than he was 10 years ago when he's making progress. And so we have to learn how to hear the hurt, to look for the problems, to, to figure out what makes people tick, especially if they're our mate. Because you cannot love somebody you don't understand. You just can't. 
And when you understand them, like our kids, it makes it easy, or at least easier. You need to understand the moods of the people closest to you, why they act the way they do, because if you care about them, you'll be aware, and you'll love them in the in-betweens. And to be fair, this is the kind of love that God has for us. It's what makes it so amazing. It's a heart love. It's a constant love. It's an everlasting love. And this is the only kind of love that continues to last forever in spite of the heartaches, in spite of the problems, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the tough circumstances that life brings our way. It is God's love. It's the affection of Jesus Christ that Paul talks about in this letter. And it's the only kind of love that lasts, which just kind of points us to lesson number four, which is this. The secret to enjoying the people in my life is to be filled with God's love. Let me explain. For when we are filled with God's love, we are continually reminded that we're forgiven. And if we take that to heart, it makes it easier then for us to forgive others. Because to be fair, we've been forgiven for way more than we're forgiving this other person for in most cases. It reminds us that we're continually loved just as we are the mess that we are, that God continues to pursue us in his love, and that helps us find patience. And it helps us love other people as well. It reminds us that we're cherished by an amazing God because of Jesus. And so my prayer, if you want joy, more joy in your life, is to be filled with this love today and to keep your focus on Jesus. For in so doing, not only will it improve the relationships in your life, Paul says, but it also begins to show you a window on how to experience true joy as you walk through this life. Guys, this is a big deal because we all struggle at relationships in different ways. My prayer is that you would implement these things and that it would turn resentment into pity and hopelessness and pity into hope. And that it would change dramatically the relationships in your life so that you can experience them more and more as ones that bring joy. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Let us pray. God, we love you so much, and we, well, we, we give you our relationships. We, we give you the struggles that we have. We give you the disappointments. We give you the, the times where the knife seems to twist in our backs. We give you the difficult people to love. We give you the struggles, and we also praise you and thank you for all the ones that bring us joy. Father, help us enlarge that circle of those that bring us joy, understanding that part of the responsibility, if not all of that, begins with us. Help us learn to be more patient in the in-betweens. Help us stop trending so negative and begin to find the positives in people. Help us start praying, Lord. We don't tap into that power nearly enough, but it changes things. It changes us, changes situations, changes the world. So, Father, be with us today and, and give us hope. Give us strength. And I pray, give us joy. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.